kids, you are dismissed. As a reminder, true to Icon's form, we are not going to shy away from the hard topics. <laughs> so today's subject matter is mature. I will be reading from Genesis 34, verses 1 through 30. Leah's daughter Dinah, who Leah bore to Jacob, went out to see some of the young women in the area. When Shechem, son of Hamar, the Hivite, who was the region's chieftain, saw her, he took her and raped her. He became infatuated with Jacob's daughter Dinah. He loved the young girl and spoke tenderly to her. Give me this girl as a wife, he told his father. Jacob heard that Shechem had defiled his daughter Dinah, but since his sons were with the livestock in the field, he remained silent until they returned. Meanwhile, Shechem's father Hamar came to speak to Jacob. Jacob's sons returned from the field when they heard about the incident and were deeply grieved and very angry. For Shechem had committed an outrage against Israel by raping Jacob's daughter, and such a thing should not be done. Hamar said to Jacob's sons, My son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Please give her to him as his wife. Intermarry with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourself. Live with us. The land is before you. Settle here, move about, and acquire property in it. Then Shechem said to Dinah's fathers, father and brothers, Grant me this favor, and I will give whatever you say. Demand of me a high compensation and gift. I'll give you whatever you ask. Just give the girl to be my wife. But Jacob's sons answered Shechem and his father Hamar deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. We cannot do this thing, they said to them. Giving our sister to an uncircumcised man is a disgrace to us. We will agree with you only on this condition. If all your males are circumcised as we are, then we will give you our daughters, take your daughters for ourselves, live with you, and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and go. Their words seemed good to Hamar and his son Shechem. The young man did not delay doing this because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most important in all of his father's family. So Hamar and his son Shechem went to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city. These men are peaceful towards us, they said. Let them live in our land and move about in it, for indeed the region is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as our wives and give our daughters to them. But the men will agree to live with us and be one people only under one condition, if all our men are circumcised as they are. Won't their livestock, their possessions, and all their animals become ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will live with us. All of the men who, all of the men who had come to the city gates listened to Hamar and his son Shechem, and those men were circumcised. On the third day, when they were still in pain, Two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords, went into the unsuspecting city, and killed every male. They killed Hamar and his son Shechem with their swords, took Dinah from Shechem's house, and went away. Jacob's sons came to the slaughter to plunder the city because their sister had been defiled. They took their flocks, herds, donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field. They captured all their possessions, dependents, and wives, and plundered everything in their houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, 
You have brought trouble on me, making me odious to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the parasites. We are few in number. If they unite against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I'm, I, I, I come to you first humbly asking that you would give us your heart as we dig into this very difficult passage. God, we are reminded that this book is not a book of fairy tales, but indeed real life problems, very difficult, messy situations. And God, I pray that we would be encouraged at the least that we would know that you care even about the messy stuff, that you give us an idea of what it is that you've called us to, what you've called us from, what you're remaking us into. So God, as we dig into what it means to be properly restored to you and properly restored to each other, God, I pray that you would give us your heart, give us your eyes, give us your ears to hear what we need, see what we see, feel what we need to feel in order to be remade to look like you. Do that through your word this very day right now in Jesus' name. Amen. We, we have been in this series and we named it aptly Genesis Restored. And I need us to really go back to that. I need us to be thinking about why we named this Genesis Restored. We've said this multiple times, that when we look at Genesis, we learn a lot about why we were created. The first two chapters tell us all the ways in which we were created for these perfect relationships with God, with each other, with creation, even the way we view ourselves. We've walked through the ways in which the fall ruined and perverted all of those relationships the ways in which we look at God, the way that we look at each other, not just humankind, but also just men to women. And our story today really does show just how broken down the relationships between men and women became at that point and have stayed even up to this point. So hopefully, as we dig into this, I want us to take a little bit of a different approach because there are some questions in a text like this that based on the way you were raised or the way that I was raised, I was never taught to ask. There are certain voices that usually do not get brought up in this story. And oftentimes, it's, it's important to ask the question, who's here, who's speaking, who's not speaking, and why? Who do we not hear? And, and why, is it, why is it not even dawn on me to wonder why certain voices don't appear? Why does it not uh, occur to me to even ask what, what might have been felt or been experienced during this time. So this big, the big idea here is, what does it mean for male and female relationships that are desperately in need of being restored? When we look at Genesis 3 and we look at the fall and we saw what happened with Adam and Eve, we, we spent a lot of time talking about that, that this was more than just, and here's why you have to have babies with childbirth, right? That's typically where we're going. Here's why work is hard, absolutely. But there's that one piece where God talks to, to, to when he, when he, levies out this curse, and he talks about what will happen between the man and the woman, which in many ways deals not only with the marriage relationship, but with relationships in general. But what he said was what? He said that ultimately they would be in a power struggle. They would ultimately be in a struggle of who can dominate and impose their will upon the other. 
And so we knew, obviously he said to Eve, though your desire will be him, yet he will have rule over you. We talked about what that meant. That didn't just mean, and now God is prescribing the way things should be. He's saying, ultimately, because there's going to be this power struggle, she'll want to have rule over you. He, you husband will now struggle, or you man will struggle with this idea of being overbearing, overpowering, and even being abusive for very logical reasons. You're bigger. You're stronger. You're larger. You can impose your will in ways that she can't. So you will struggle with being overbearing and being abusive. And that's beyond just how to be a good husband. It's actually, what does it mean to be a godly man? How do I steward the fact that I might have increased privilege related to women? How do I steward that in such a way so that I'm not abusive? Well, our story today really does show just how far sin nature got and where it is even now. How is it that people, specifically women, have to deal with certain forms of oppression related to sexual abuse and sexual assault? And what does it mean to hear their voices? Do we even seek to hear their voices? Or do we seek to silence them? We've always lived in a culture that either encourages or ignores sexual violence against women specifically. It's an issue that, by and large, people of faith have remained generally mute on. It's an issue that, honestly, it takes some cataclysmic event before we even begin to think through how to respond. So when we look at this story, we're going we're gonna to dig into this because we're going to think through this story and all the ways that we see real-life issues now showing up here. Talking 3,500 to 4,000 years ago, seeing these same situations uh, that's happened. So this story that we just read, it's about Jacob's only daughter, Dinah. Dinah was the daughter of Leah. And as is often the case with biblical stories about rape, we never hear about Dinah. This entire story that we just heard, we hear things about Dinah, things that happened to Dinah, but we never hear from Dinah. We never hear what it is that she felt. We, never, we don't even hear any of the fears, the frustrations, the anxiety, the damage, the pain. We don't hear that. And you have to ask the question, why? You should be asking that we should be asking the question, why? Why don't we hear what it is that she's feeling or what she's doing? And the reason why I say we have to ask that is because we are used to overlooking the pain specifically of those that are underprivileged, underrepresented, without certain power. And in this case, it was women. So it's really easy to overlook what the woman might have been dealing with because her story becomes the wallpaper in what we think is the bigger story. But actually, her pain should be the story. Her pain should be a huge part of the story. So we don't hear from Dinah. So we don't even think. You realize that, that there's a, we're going to walk through what it means for women to be both silent and to be silenced. What it means to be both silent and be silenced. And then ask this question, what do we need to do to restore that so that this is not a, a culture in which people feel, women feel the pressure to both be silent and to be silenced? Dinah isn't just silent, she's silenced. And silencing women who have suffered sexual violence in any way constricts freedom people and power structures that are responsible for silencing women's voices, they think, we think, that we're keeping them safe. But ultimately, keeping women who have been violated hidden or keeping them silent, it's not protection. It's actually another form of victimization. 
It's actually another form of actually holding people almost hostage to some of the horrendous things they've had to deal with. And we'll talk about why that is. But think about all the times, of all the times and places in human history, think about all those times when women haven't been able to tell their own story. Or women have not actually been given the freedom and the safety to be able to tell their own story without figuring out how to change and, 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 and fix the story in such a way that the audience can hear it. Imagine if, if, if Dinah, in her, in her story, what would have happened had she been allowed to participate fully the way that her brothers could, walking freely in the open air? What if she had been given a voice to speak out or to talk back or to tell it as she saw it? What, what would some of the stories be like if every woman in the world were granted those freedoms? And this woman, Dinah, is violated and then rendered invisible and silent. So this story, we would all agree, is tragic. We would agree that it's heartbreaking. But we also would agree that it's all too familiar. There are still structures that silence women today. Societal expectations, peer pressure, a desire to be liked, the fear that if they speak what is true for women, they will be left shunned or left alone. Or the outrage and active silencing coming from men who don't like it when women sound too uppity or too aggressive or too cold. You see, if God is on a mission to restore our relationships to what they were before the fall, then there's a lot of work still to be done. And if we've been redeemed, if we say we've been redeemed and we say we've been bought back and we say we're being continually changed and sanctified, then where is our collective outrage when we see evidence of this in our culture? Where is our outrage? Not just, oh yeah, that happens. Here's some statistics in our country related to sexual assault and rape. According to the CDC, 1.3 million women specifically are assaulted a year. The Department of Justice says that three out of four don't even go reported. They go unreported. The statistics say that one in five women have or will be assaulted. For Native American, it's one in three. It's the highest percentage of women that get assaulted in this country, Native American women. 32,000 women a year are impregnated as a result of being assaulted. And contrary to certain politicians' beliefs, whether or not she is raped has nothing to do with whether or not she cannot get pregnant. America is ranked 14th in the world in terms of rape, rapes per thousand people. 14th in the world. 97% of rapists are never incarcerated in this country. According to the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, RAIN, uh, it's the largest anti-sexual violence organization in the world. And according to the statistics, over, uh, out of over uh, 1,000 sexual assaults, out of every 1,000 sexual assaults, 995 will walk free. 230 reported to the police. 46 gets reported, and they end up leading to an arrest. Nine of those cases get referred to prosecutors, and five of those cases will lead to a felony conviction. By the way, rape has the lowest incarceration rate of any other crime. Any other crime. Do we have a problem? Yeah, we have a problem. Why is there this collective silence in the face of such staggering statistics? Why is there a culture in which we remain silent in the face of staggering statistics? 
Because much like the people in this story, we have been taught and enculturated to remain silent. And then we teach others who have been victimized to remain silent. And then we go into our churches and we worship and we sing and we have no sense of what it means to bear that burden together. When you look at this story, the first person you see that's, that's one of the first people that you see that's silent, think about how this story opens up. You notice what, what, what happens in, the, chap, in, in, in uh, the 34th chapter, 34th chapter of Genesis, when Leah's daughter, Dinah, whom Leah bore to Jacob, went out to see uh, some of the young women in the area. Uh, by the way, when you begin to study this, and this is probably one of the most disconcerting facts that I constantly have to remember, and we've talked about this many times. When you're studying scripture, it's, it's vitally important if you use commentary and you read what other people have written to consider the source as well. There are all kinds of biases that we all have. Sadly, the majority of commentary that we have are male commentaries that, that oftentimes don't see their own male biases when they're making commentary on scripture. And so most, a lot of commentary, uh, commentators would look at this and go, well, this first verse, uh, Leah, uh, Dinah, whom Leah bore to Jacob, went out to see some of the young men of the area. That in and of itself, they begin to shame her right away and go, well, what was she doing there? Well, why was she going there? Why was she going to see those women there? Didn't she know where she was? Did she not know what time of the day it was? These, this is what we're taught to do when people begin to bring this type of victimization to the forefront. Be very careful. And this is something we've said over and over again. It's so important to check our own collective biases before we start reading that into the text as we go. And so she's there with the women in the area when Shechem, son of Hamor, the, H the Hivite, who was the region's chieftain, saw her, took her, and raped her. The, the, it's almost, it's, it shouldn't even be, it's sad, but it's almost, you can almost see this, right? Because there's this idea, Shechem, he, he does really what we just said Genesis 3 kind of says. If I, if my job, if I want to uh, uh, impose my will upon you, which scripture shows us that is all of our sinful bent. If I can impose whatever will it is, if I can impose it, I will do it because it's all about power. You realize when you look at what Shechem did, he saw her, saw that she was attractive, took her, and then raped her. Let me ask you something. This has to be about something more than sex then, right? It has to be. Because if it was just, we're grown-ups here, and I think I'm seeing mostly grown-ups here. If it was just about sexual release, it was something he could have done without her. It's beyond just sexual release. It's, I want to be able to have gratification at the expense of your own bodily agency, about, uh, at the expense of your own bodily integrity. There's something about my desire to not only get what I want, but to impose my will and take from you. That's, that's the mindset that you see this man in. And honestly, this is the mindset of many people. I see this, I want that, I will now take it. And sadly, in certain uh, areas, that is actually the measure of what it means to be successful. That's the measure of what it means to be a man. I see what I want, I go get it. I'm not taking no for an answer. And to some degree, we almost applaud that. That person knows what they want and they know how to get it. So Shechem is doing kind of what most men were kind of taught to do or expected to do and enculturated to do. And so he does. Shechem goes and he sees her, takes her, rapes her. And I think it's, it's interesting when you look at this story and you see the response. First of all, 
Why is Jacob silent here? Have you ever wondered that? Why is Jacob, the father, the patriarch, why is he silent? Now, depending on who you read, depending on who makes these folks into heroes, some will say things like, well, it's because he was using wisdom, and, and, and it's possible. He's using wisdom. He's there in this land. He needs to figure out what to do, so he's just waiting. He's waiting for the brothers. But what you realize is, throughout the rest of the story, Jacob never says a word. He leaves it to the brothers to determine what to do. Why? He's the patriarch. He's the one that God has entrusted this promise to. Why would he not be the one to speak up for his daughter? There's a lot of theories on that, but here's the thing. This was also a culture where women were treated as property. By the way, Jacob's two wives were a matter of bartering for his last work assignment. So, so why is it that Jacob at this moment doesn't stop and go, oh, th- this is my daughter. We, I need to actually protect her. There's something that needs to be done here. No, matter of fact, they come to see him to treat his daughter, Dinah, as an itemized deduction in a marriage contract. Why is he so silent here? Why are we so silent here? How do we get to a place where this is not something that even enrages? And, I, and look, don't tell me, well, it was just because he was trying to be wise and that was it. And he was just, because people have praised this. It's like wise, controlling your anger, controlling and focusing on what matters and all of that. But here's the deal. Look a little bit further down. What happened when Jacob's son Joseph was kidnapped and killed? He had a lot to say. He not only had a lot to say, he had a lot of tears to shed. He mourned, tore his clothing, was constantly shedding tears and have a broken heart for the son that was lost. But he has no words to say for his daughter. And then you look at, again, Shechem, first time he saw her, took her, did what he did. And this is so much more about what we see in Genesis Three, I love her. It's interesting, too, because after he takes her, after he sees her, takes her, rapes her, afterward, then he begins to go, I have emotional feelings for this woman. I love her. I want her now. I want to be connected to her. I want to marry her. Do you realize this is how toxic relationships work? This is how toxic relationships work. Here's how it works. It goes this way. I violate first, and after a violation occurs, I want to validate my violation with all of my good amorous feelings for you. In other words, I know I did this, but, but I love you. And so, and so basically, I'm going to put the ball in your court. I need you to manage my good emotions for you now. I need you to manage my emotions. I don't, really, I don't want to have anything to do with managing your pain, managing the ways I violated you, because how I feel about you matters more than how you feel about what I've done to you. So, so do something about that. So now I put that into your court. And they're like, oh, well, you know, he just did this horrific thing to her. But now he's being uber romantic with her. I feel I love her. I feel drawn to her. I need her. How I feel should take precedence over what I do. This is how I validate my own violation of this woman. You realize that this is the situation that many, 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 many women have faced and are facing. Not only just out there, but in here. 
That is a situation where it's constantly put into this, this, this thing where like, okay, I've just been violated, but now this person is doing, they're showing all this love, and they're showing all this concern, and they're showing all this care. And so, and so here's what it does. It will cause you to recapitulate the things that, was a vi- that were a violation. You'll recapitulate those things and go, oh, wait a minute, maybe it wasn't that bad. Maybe it wasn't uh, something wrong. Maybe it wasn't, uh, maybe I gave him the wrong idea. Maybe I was wearing that thing that made him behave that way. Maybe the time of day did have something to do with that. Maybe the first three no's weren't stern enough. He's a man. They do, they, they need what they need. You see, what happens in this broken relationship between men and women is we get into the situation where we confuse sexual violence with sexual virility. We get to a place where we go, well, hey, this is there, but you know what? That's just because they were just passionate. That's all it was. They they were passionate about that, but now they love me. That's what brokenness looks like. That's not healthy relationship. That's not healthy engaging amongst men and women. This is a primary way to silence women when they're violated by flooding them with all of your good intentions flooding them with everything you, you still feel for them in spite of causing a possibly irreparable damage in that violation. And then you look at what the brothers do in this story. Because the brothers have something to say. They're the ones that get to come in. And typically, we look at them and we go, yeah, well, this is the silver lining. At least they came in and came to her rescue and came to, to vindicate in some ways, to, to find a way to, to, to protect her honor. And so they hatch this plan, which you realize, matter of fact, the first time Jacob opens his mouth is when he gets upset about the plan they did. Because now he's like, hey, you're getting ready to bring a lot of bad PR on us. We, we got to figure out what we have to do. You just went out and tricked all these guys, you know, this clever trick that they did. And we don't even spend a lot of time there because ultimately we need to figure out what was their motive when the brothers, specifically Levi and Simeon, what, were, what was the motive for this? Was it really to protect the honor of their sister? Well, you don't get any conversation between them and the sister, do you? There's really nothing that actually happens. Dinah is actually silent, and they get up and they go, we've got to go do something about it. We've got to jump in and you find an excuse to perpetuate this horrendous act of violence on the whole community. Let's go do it. You see, what, what really I believe is happening here is not just this wonderful act of trying to get revenge for their sister who they see as innocent. In many ways, and this is again what this form of masculinity looks like, appropriating her pain as an excuse to build their own mantle of masculinity. Well, I, 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 she's hurting. Okay, that, that they did that to her. But you realize these were guys that I'm looking for. You know how there's some people that are just looking for a reason to just let out unbridled masculine t- testosterone. I just want a reason to fight. We know this was their story, right? How do we know this? Because later at the very end of Genesis, when Jacob is on his deathbed and he's giving all of his final words to all of his sons, when he talks about Levi and Simeon, he basically condemns them because of the ways in which they are rooted in their anger, the way that they're led by their bad tempers, the way that they're led by this desire to prove their masculinity by being overly aggressive, constantly looking for a reason to get into a fight. So you can't say that this was just rooted in, oh, they just really wanted to protect the honor of their sister. No, they wanted a reason. This is what happens within this brokenness of men and women. I want to use you to prove to myself that I'm a man. I want to use you to prove to myself that I'm a good man, that I'm a provider, that I'm a strong man, that whatever it is that I I can do to use you, not really listen to you, 
not really understand where you are, not understand what it means to feel some of the pain that you're feeling. Oh, you've got pain? How convenient. Let me use that so that I can feel like a better man now. That's what it looks like to have this legit brokenness between men and women. So these brothers get up and they do this thing. They do this thing. And you see how Jacob begins to respond. And he's going, what, what, what is what is happening? What is coming upon us? What's going to happen? What are they going to bring? What kind of punishment are we going to have to see? This action had less to do with defending Dinah and more to do with using her to feel more like being a man. And here's, here's why this is important for a lot of reasons. Number one, if we're going to be in a legit relationship with anybody, then we need to be in a place where we can actually hear where they are, hear what they're doing, which means we need to create a very safe environment wherein they can begin to share what is real. The reason why we don't do this is because we are in this very silent, this rape culture that's always been around. There's this pressure to silence women. And so one of the reasons or one of the ways that it happens and the ways that it happened back then is we adopt these rape myths People will kind of phrase it this way, these rape myths, and I just alluded to some of them. Well, if, if something happened, it must be because of something that they did. If something happened, then it why? Because it can't possibly be that there are just people that given certain opportunities will just do it. It has to be because there's, there are things that women as custodians of their bodies didn't do a good enough job of. And so because they didn't do a good enough job, they now, we're not saying they're totally bad. Maybe it's 90-10, but they did, something, they did something on their part. I wore an outfit that I shouldn't have worn, and so that's why. And so here's what we do. The, the first time we hear about somebody that's, that's been assaulted, the, the mindset, you might not even say it, but you think at first, well, what time was it? Well, where were they? Well, what were they wearing? What's their sexual history? You see, all of those, why do we even go there? Why do we go there first? Because there's something in, deep within that goes, it can't be because there's just intrinsic thing that happens in, within sin nature that people go, oh, an opportunity to impose my will. Let me go and do this. No, it's got to be something that she's doing. And that's the reason why when we call ourselves trying to protect women, we create rules that in many ways only restrict women further. And this is definitely the case in ministry. It's a very famous, famous, fa I didn't even think I was going to go here, but this is a very famous approach that you'll see many ministers have in the, in, in the name of trying to, quote unquote, do the right thing. It's called the Billy Graham rule. Anybody ever heard the Billy Graham rule? I know the Billy Graham rule. Billy Graham, I see some people putting up that hand very begrudgingly. So th this is a rule that basically says, okay, if I'm ever working in an environment where it's just me and another woman, I'll make sure that the doors are open and windows are all open because, and then you get some of the reasons why. And it's like, man, intrinsic, on one sense, I get it. On one sense, you're like, okay, I'd, but, but what does that really say to women? Well, I, I hope you keep your door open because apparently when you close the door, you just can't control yourself. I, I hope that, and, and not only that, what's the, what's the dis, uh, disproportionate impact on something like that? How many meetings happen, men and men, behind a closed door where big things are happening, but now it can't happen that way. You realize you don't have the same kind of meeting with a door open than with a door closed, specifically if there's certain private conversations that need to happen. So 
systemically, women just get left out. But we're trying to protect them. As opposed to the number one way to avoid assault and rape is to not rape. Super simple. Not creating systems in, 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 ways, in, in ways in which we start to say, subtly or not so subtly, I'm putting the blame on you or putting some of the blame on you. That's actually not as wise and as safe as we think that it is. And so we create this culture where we're constantly going, where are you wearing? Where were you? What time was it? All of these things, we almost run the gamut first. And that is the reason why such a small number of women will even report. Because every, you realize that every time someone has to uh, bring up or talk about this horrific thing that happens, they have to almost be re-victimized over and over again because they're constantly having to manage what you're going to be thinking about in their story. And just what if one of the three or four litmus test items that you use aren't met? What if they wore whatever that they wore and they know that if you know that they wore that, then you're going to go, well, this brings her innocence down a notch. If, if, if they happen to be in a situation or be in a place where you would think, well, you know, you should have known better. If they happen to be there, you know what that's going to mean? They're not going to want to share anything. Then. Why would they? Because all they know is that you are now assessing guilt on her part the entire time. When the truth of the matter is that it should not, it should not matter what time where they were or, and, and, and who they were with. And it should, none of that should actually matter. What should matter is what does it mean for an image bearer to be respected and given dignity like another image bearer? That's it. And so if somebody violates the dignity of another image bearer, that is where the conversation should end. But it isn't. Because we've always been in this situation where we just remain silent or we silence the voices of those who have been assaulted. And so you think about where Dinah is and you think about the situation. I mean, in many ways, we have not moved very, very far at all on this because this is the same thing she clearly had to have been feeling. Oh, man, I, I, if, if, they, if I talk about this and I start, what's going to happen? What details are they going to ask me for? I mean, you do realize that even within, not only in the Bible, throughout the Middle East, the laws that were in place for women, if they were assaulted or raped, it was very not pro-women. As a matter of fact, we're going to see later when the law was written, there were certain aspects of the law where if a man happened to rape a woman, the best thing he could do was pay a dowry and marry her. And so a lot of times people have looked at this story and they'll go, well, it couldn't have been that bad because she ended up going back with him. But this is, again, where our ignorance uh, really belies a lot of the things we think we know. Because ultimately, if you are a woman, you have, even back then, even worse than now, you have no real political standing. You have no representation. If, 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 think about Dinah. She's probably a teenager at this point. If, if Dinah's father, if Jacob ends up dying, she's not married, she has no one to protect her. Most times, when women were in that situation, one of the only ways that they could be able to get money for themselves was to then go into a life of prostitution. So do you realize that it wasn't just being violated that was the issue? I'm vi I've been violated. And now that people know that I've been violated, I am looked at as damaged goods. And so I have no way of, 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 of having any type of subsistence for myself. No one will ever marry me. So what else can I do? So we shouldn't be shocked that Dinah would probably end up going back with this man. That's not proof at all 
of, well, and we do that now. Well, it can't be too bad because they're with that person. Can't be too bad. They haven't left. It's easy for men to say this, and it's easy for women who've never dealt with anything like that to have a sense of privilege and to, in many ways, take on the same words of the men who created the system as a form of Stockholm syndrome and then throw it back on other women. That is not how we love each other. That's actually how we silence each other. There are people that honestly feel like I can't possibly bring this kind of pain even into, with, among people at my church because if I were to do that, I already know the scarlet letter that would be put on me. Or if I were to do that, I know all of the pain that I almost have to, re, I have to go through yet again and again. It's like opening up a wound and there's no one that really comes alongside to really be a part of that healing process. And again, there are some people that are like, I don't even want to share it with my family because I know my family, they do the best that they can. But, you know, some of the folks might be like, I'm going to use this as a way to, to just go off and go crazy. I, have a, uh, I know one person where when they uh, were assaulted, they went to, 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 to court and all of a sudden they could not even have some of their family members because their family members just wanted to fight right in the court. And, and they're like, you think, you think that you're doing something good for me, but honestly, you're just making it hard for me because you're making it about you right now. You're making it about your anger. You're making it about your frustration. You're never really wondering or caring about what this is doing to me. And ultimately, there's another aspect of what this does to those who have been violated. There's this emotional, psychosocial aspect of abuse that we often are just so ignorant of. Some of the statistics that have come out about the impacts of sexual assault and rape on women. These are things we need to know. 94% of women who are raped experience symptoms of PTSD during the first two weeks following the rape. 30% of women who, uh, who have been assaulted report symptoms of PTSD nine months after rape. 33% of women who are raped contemplate suicide. One out of three. One out of three women think about ending their own lives after suicide. 13% of those women who, who have been raped indeed commit suicide. About 70% of rape or sexual assault victims experience moderate to severe distress, a larger percentage than for any other violent crime. There are more, a larger percentage of women who have been raped that deal with PTSD than there are people who have had attempts on their life. People who have been, uh, people who have attempted to kill a person, there's still larger percentage of women who have been raped that deal with PTSD than those who have faced potential homicide. People who have been sexually assaulted are more likely to use drugs than the general public. You see how some of these things we're bringing up right now, for church people, all we can do is just give them, we'll just stop. Well, just don't do it. We just have good personal responsibility. Just, just take on your own stuff. And then when people start to say, no, you don't understand, I've got this stuff there. You know what we do? Here's one of our favorite phrases to use that I think we ought to stop. Well, don't be a victim. Do you realize how asinine that statement is? We think we're giving somebody self-help. What we're doing is we're finding a way to gloss over legitimate pain. Don't be a victim. I refuse to be a victim. You don't positive think your way out of legitimate trauma. That's foolishness, but that's been Christianity for a good, good period of time. So we can act like it's everything out there. It's actually in here. Well, you just need to pray more. Well, you just need to memorize some more scripture. You just need to stop thinking about that. 
You just need to not be so bitter. You need to just let God heal you. Yes, the primary way that God heals us is through the loving arms of his people. The primary way he begins to heal us is not just us by ourselves. It's just me and God. It's, man, Lord, I need you and the community that you've brought so that I can do what you said we're called to do, and that is to bear one another's burdens. He never said it's supposed to be just you and him. But we've created a culture in a way that makes people feel like I have no other choice because I can't trust this community here. I can't trust that people are actually going to be able to step in to my pain. So when they begin to say, I've got this trauma, I've got this thing, usually, and this is where, honestly, it's just maybe the last few decades where where Christians, maybe even more mainline Christians, are starting to accept that mental health is a legitimate thing, that emotional health is a legitimate thing. And it boggles my mind why Christians, well-meaning Christians, Bible-believing Christians, would ever fight this, right? Because if we say that other aspects of creation are affected by the fall, right? Other aspects of creation, the fact that you can be born with a congenital heart disease because of the fact of the effect of the fall, why would we not then say, man, there are things emotionally or psychologically that can also be impacted by the effect of the fall? Why would we ever be shocked by that? So when you look at somebody and you go, man, if a person says that they need to go and really sit down with someone, maybe see someone that's a therapist, that's not a sign of weakness. That's actually a sign of wisdom. Fools avoid that. Fools avoid wise counsel. Fools avoid being able to go, man, if you have a heart condition, nobody would say, pray your way out of that. They would say, go see a cardiologist. But now you've got real trauma and I'm supposed to just pray it away? We sound foolish. And we're not able to bear each other's burdens when we do that. But we think that we're giving people really good and wise counsel. Sexual violence also affects victims' relationships with their family, their friends, their coworkers. Listen to this. 38% of victims of sexual violence experience work or school problems, which can include significant problems with a boss, a coworker, or a peer. 37% uh, of, of victims experience family or friend problems, including getting into arguments more frequently than before, not feeling able to trust their family, friends, not feeling as close to them as before the crime. 84% of survivors who were victimized by an intimate partner experienced professional or emotional issues. Think about that. Number one, the majority of assaults that happen in this country happen at the hands of someone that that people know. So so eight out of 10 of those, and by the way, I know that we love doing the whataboutism, so if you end up sending me an email or a text message saying, why didn't you talk about men that do this? We're not talking about that. That's important. That's something. Men make up 3% of rape victims. So we're talking about impact right now. What about isms? All that, do, all that does is shows your refusal to deal with real issues. Anytime you go, well, what about this? That proves you're not willing to deal with the real issue right here. The biggest impact of sexual assault is on women. So let's stay there. And when you look at 84% of those women who are victimized by an intimate partner experience these types of professional issues at work or at school. 79% of survivors victimized by a family member, close friend, or acquaintance. They end up having increased problems at work or school. 67% of survivors who were victimized by a stranger experience professional emotional issues, moderate to severe distress, increased problems at work or school. There's a massive problem. This isn't something, and yes, even we can see, hey, it might be better than this point. The bigger issue is not to look at the numbers, because the numbers can go any number of ways. The real question is, what's happening on a heart level where we can see a culture that exists that way and say nothing about it? If anything, we'll only deal with the outcomes. 
and we'll only give people tools to avoid certain outcomes. But we won't actually, listen, men, let me just ask you, and I'm sure there are exceptions, but by and large, men aren't taught, hey, here's how to make sure that you respect the actual bodily agency, body agency of women. Here's how you, even better, here's how you actively work to be a non-rapist in your life. Anybody ever had that talk? Even the best of us are like, here's how you make sure you respect women. Here's how you make sure you don't, don't call them out of their name, all of that. But, but, but ha- so that's a great way of like, here's how to not, maybe even not assault someone. But has anyone ever been taught, here's how you are actively a, an anti-rapist? Do we, do, we, do we even do that? Do we think that way? No. The best we do is we give young girls, here's how to not get raped. That's the best we give them. So we never change the structure that allows for a culture of rape to go on. Uh, a, a while back, there was, um, I might have brought this up years ago, but there was a movie that came out and it was produced by uh, a man who, in the movie, you know, people were making a big deal about it. It was pretty, it got a lot of publicity and it was uh, made by a man who had been accused of rape. He was a very uh, popular uh, actor for a little while, um, but when he was in college, he was, uh, he was a wrestler. And while he was a wrestler, uh, he uh, had been accused of uh, raping uh, a young girl. This girl was a full academic scholarship uh, student there, and after uh, the, 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 the rape that had occurred along with several of his friends and his teammates, she uh, reported it, and of course, as is often the case, the school rallied around this young man because those of us who've ever played any high school or college athletes, there very much is a code amongst athletes where you just don't, immediately the first thing that you do is you question the girl. You rarely will check the guy. It just doesn't happen often. It might happen. There might be exceptional cases. That's not an accurate cross-section of the rest. By and large, there's this, this idea that, well, Hey, somebody must have, she, she knew what she was getting into. That's what it is. And so that kind of happened here. So this particular athlete does this. They end up recording it. They do all these horrible things. She ends up finding out she had been drugged, all these things. She starts to uh, report it. When she reports it, basically what they do is they just plaster her name and phone number all over campus so that everyone begins to come after her. Because, of course, she's the target. So they come after her. They come after her. They come after her. She drops out of school. She ends up dropping out of school and moving all the way down to Florida and becomes completely broken because of the things we just saw, all of the emotional distress, all of the horrible ways in which she just feels unseen, unheard, unsafe. She ends up having a child, can't take care of the child, gives it up for to some family members, ends up committing suicide. And this young man goes on, has an incredible career, ends up getting picked up at like some modeling agency, ends up becoming an, a- an actor, jumped to a couple movies that we probably would all know, makes this movie, everybody's making a big deal. I happen to know a person who was a roommate with this guy, and I asked this guy, I said, man, this is really messing me up right now. Because I just don't, and this guy's a pastor, I'm like, I don't understand how, with a clear conscience, I can even go see this and support this because ultimately within rape culture, this guy just walks the way that 90x plus percentage of men end up walking. And this guy basically got to appropriate what he wanted from her, keep on moving. His life will just keep on going. Hers ends. And there just seems to be no recourse. And I'm just conflicted. And this person responded and said, well, I knew this person, and, and, and I remember being in the dorm room with this guy, and he was just crying, and he was just so broken over what happened because, you know, and, he, and then he said, 
What do we need to do to, to, to teach our daughters, to teach our daughters not to make bad decisions and then when they make them, not to feel so bad and embarrassed that they have to claim rape after? And I just went, that's the problem. The problem didn't start with what do we need to do to teach our men? It starts with what do we need to do to teach our women? See, this is actually where people even in church talk this way. People in ministry talk this way because something is still broken in the ways in which we're supposed to see each other. The ways in which if God is really restoring that man and female relationship, then why does it not look restored when it comes to issues like this? Why do we not have times where we sit and we mourn and we're broken over not just the fact that these things happen, but there's a culture in which it happens. When somebody alleges that they have been assaulted by a politician of any political stripe, why is it that immediately, depending on our political persuasion, we determine whether or not that person is guilty? Listen, when, when, when you think through, and I know what a common refrain is, common refrain amongst a lot of us is, well, I hear it, but how do I know if a person truly is not just making up something for, for some publicity or what have you? How do I know that? I mean, I just want to make sure that I know for sure they're not lying beforehand. Some of the most exhaustive longitudinal studies over about a 10-year period found that the highest percentage of women who are bringing false claims is about 8%. The real average is roughly about 4 to 5%. It's not that high. And honestly, what is it, what's in it for someone? Do you, really, you realize culturally what happens if somebody ever brings an actual accusation of assault or rape? It actually doesn't work out well. Most folks are afraid to do it because they know what will come. It's not really in most people's best interest to just make up stories about that kind of assault. And somehow we created that rape myth as well. And again, that is propagated amongst men and women. But when you really think through what actually has to happen, what actually needs to change? What does it look like, men, when, when uh, uh, Folks are going through, I've seen this and I've, heard, I've seen it and I've heard it from several uh, women who have reported this story. How many times, matter of fact, I bet women could finish these stories for me. How many times if you don't seem to have the right kind of smile on your face and you're walking down a grocery aisle, what are guys prone to say to you? Smile. You too pretty to look that mad. You see that? Why does that happen? Because on some level, men in general feel like they have some degree of agency and ownership over the experience. I actually want to be able to see some type of, I want to see you acknowledge that I'm in your presence with a smile. I want, I want, I want to know, like I want to be reminded that I, maybe even I want to be reminded that I'm attractive enough to get a response from you. And so because I didn't get a response from you, I'm going to stop you and be like, hey, why aren't you smiling? Somebody might have, a, it's, it's interesting, one time I had to tell a guy, I'm like, she had, whatever look she had on her face, it was there for a reason. And clearly your presence didn't assuage that condition, so keep moving. Because they're not here for you. That, that's the thing. So why, do, why does anyone feel like that they have the right and this idea that, man, it, it's my job to tell you how you should comport yourself when you're around me? There's something broken in the way that we relate to each other. So, so if we're being restored in relationship to one another, that means that when, we, when we're around each other, we actually see each other. We actually hear each other. And we refuse to silence each other. 
we refuse to silence each other. That means that if there's a degree to which I know you've dealt with whatever, what do I need to do? What do we need to be doing to create an environment where it is safe to be able to, to process these things? Safe to be able to communicate these things? If those numbers are true, one out of five, some numbers say even one out of three. But I think the numbers are one out of five of, of, actual, of, of that form of assault rape, but one out of five of any form of sexual harassment, including rape. One out of three, I'm sorry. So if one out of three women have had some type of interaction, whether rape or other forms of sexual assault or abuse or harassment, my question is, how often does that ever get brought up or addressed in the circles within the churches that we're in? Some, for some people, you've already, been in, you've already been programmed to just stuff it away anyway and just code it as just boys being boys. And so your job is to do everything in your part to mitigate the boys being boys craze. Your job is to do that. So to the degree that you fail mitigating that, then you end up paying a consequence. When do we create environments where we, people can actually feel legitimately seen and heard and not silenced? You see, that's what the gospel equips us to do. If the gospel does the job we claim that it's doing, if the Holy Spirit is doing the job we claim it is doing, then on some level that has to start melting that away and go, A, I'm aware of my own implicit biases. I know that there's probably, if I'm a man, I'm sure that there are ways in which either I've been guilty of this, maybe not assault, but other forms, or maybe, and there are other things. Maybe there's ways in which I've created an environment where people may not even feel confident or comfortable to come to me and say, hey, this actually made me feel this way. I actually did not feel particularly safe. I actually did not feel like that I could share some of the things that I'm feeling. Or there are things that have been incredibly triggering because of the trauma that, I've, that I'm coming with. Why do people not feel that safe? There's something that's still not happening. There's a brokenness we still don't have. And that's what the gospel assures us will happen. Now, it doesn't end here, and I'm thankful because ultimately, I mean, this story becomes, it's really sad for Dinah because you have to sit back and go, well, why is this here? Why, 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 why in the world is this story here? You realize that in almost every single rape story in the Bible, God's voice is never heard. You never see God actually say a word when these things are happening. So we're left to derive a lot of things. And depending on our bent and where we come from, we'll derive a lot of things. But I think one of the things that we see for certain, and we see this in other really horrific, tragic stories in the Bible, is this is indeed what we are capable of outside of the redemption of the Holy Spirit. This is what relationships look like when they are not restored. And sometimes there are stories that are shown to be able to show us this is exactly who, this isn't just who they are. This is who we are outside of being truly redeemed and restored. So this means we are always on watch. We're always looking. We're always like, okay, I, I get this, and I know this now, and I'm not trying to come up with excuses right out of the gate. I'm not trying to come up with, oh, that person over there, they just clearly, when I see situations where somebody is a PhD, and, is a, and it shouldn't even take that. It shouldn't take the exceptional woman to prove the case. But when I see someone that's a PhD, and they get up in front of all these cameras to say X, Y, and Z happened, why don't we just stop and go, you know what, if those, if those numbers are true, and the largest number we can think are 8% of false accusations, why don't we start with just believing first? Why not just start with believing that first? Instead of this idea of, uh, well, let me make sure that I, I get all this stuff because this might be one of those 8%ers. 
I think this is, reminds me of something else that, that, that came up when we were um, prepping, when we were prepping for this. Uh, one of the things that came up is this. You know, I think that for some people, and actually Kim brought this up, and it was really profound for us. For some people, for a lot of people actually, when the issue of assault and ways that we treat women comes up, here's typically the, the, the best case approach. It's typically, I have a mother, I have a sister, I have a daughter. How would I feel if that happened to her? And we mean well when we say that, but actually that in and of itself isn't good enough. Because what you're really saying is, I need close proximity to a certain image bearer to know how to protect the dignity of said image bearer. Why should I need to be that close to know that you shouldn't be treated that way? Honestly. Why should I have to be, you know, and then what do you say for the people who don't have a daughter or don't have a sister or don't know their mother or don't have a good relationship with any of them? So now what you're saying is that I have to find a way to, to treat you vicariously, right? To vicariously treat my mother through you, vicariously care for my sister through you. Why can't I just care for you? Why can't I just care for you, the, the, the dignity that you have because you're an image bearer, man or woman? You see, this is, this is what it means to have a legit relationship. My relationship to you is actually having nothing to do with what I had with my mom, my sister, anybody else. It's you. And I, and, and I don't need, I think, I think the way that Kim put it, something to the degree of, I don't need to conjure up some degree of concern or emotional connection to this person in order to actually care. Why do I have to coach myself into caring for people with whom I may not have a close relationship? Why do I have to do that? Well, because of Genesis 3, because I'm still automatically separated. If I'm estranged from God to a degree, I'm estranged from you. And if I generally want to usurp the authority of God and have his power, then I probably want power over you too. And so it's really easy for me not to care. It's really easy for me not to empathize. It's really easy for me not to want to hear. And it's really easy for me to just want to silence you. And this is where it becomes hard because I think for some people, they're like, man, I just... Lately, I've been seeing a lot of things come up on social media where people are like, men are under attack. <clears throat> men are under attack. I think that's really scary. Not the fact that men are under attack. I don't think men are under attack. But I think that we love to say it because the moment people begin to advocate, the moment that people who are underrepresented or, or under people who are uh, in any way not treated fairly, people who are in any way disenfranchised, the moment that they begin to advocate for their own rights, if you are in the majority on this issue, you feel like you're being assaulted. Equality feels like assault for you. And then actually, if you really care, you would go, yeah, that's actually right. Absolutely. Because the numbers show men are not under attack, right? If you just go across the board, average pay, average, uh, what, what, what does it look like for people to actually be able to get certain jobs? What does it look like for people to have to deal with certain sexual assault? If 90, roughly 95 to 97% of people that are being assaulted are women, I would say very literally women are under attack. But why do we do that? Because again, we love power. And if I have to give you any degree of equality, that means I might have to give up some of my power. I don't want to do that either. So I need to build in all these seemingly logical arguments that are devoid from the heart. I can separate my mind from my heart and go, well, logically, I think X, Y, and Z would be the case, completely ignoring the impact that indeed has occurred for women. So here's what I want to leave you with. 
You think through the fact that we see this brokenness is there, and we see in the Old Testament, we see it now. The question is, how does God see this? The question is, what does Jesus do with this? Because you can easily go, well, man, I mean, if I'm supposed to be restored, I don't see any examples of what it looks like for men and women to be rightly restored, for men and women to be able to see each other, for men, those in the, uh, in the privileged position, to be able to steward said privilege to care for the flourishing of the one who's not privileged. How do I do that in this conversation with women? Actually, Kim preached this a little while ago. Think about what happens with the woman at the well. Consider that for a minute. You see, Jesus interacts with this woman in a way that men would never have interacted with this woman because there's a degree to which Jesus begins to see her. He begins to not let her be silenced anymore. Remember when she comes there, he talks, they have a conversation, theological conversation. What I love about Jesus is he doesn't, you know, in church, what we do is we hide from messy stuff by talking about theology. We hide, we hide from difficult things by building up these big theological mountains, making someone have to have the calisthenics enough to be able to climb up that mountain. Once they've climbed it, then maybe we can talk about the deep heart stuff. But for now, let's just, and this is how you actually can, can conf, uh, not conflate, but you can actually uh, uh, um, find ways to misdirect. There are ways in which we deflect. So instead of talking about legit heart issues, no, but I think the real issue is, and we get into this big theological debate that actually does not impact the heart on one level, doesn't impact any way that you actually love people anymore, and in some ways gives you an excuse to stop loving people. But Jesus doesn't do that. They got into these theological conversations, then eventually he talks to her, says, where's your husband? <laughs> She's like, I don't have a husband. He's like, I know, I know you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands. And the man you're with right now is not your husband. Now, you know what we typically do with that? Specifically through male bias lenses. We look at this and we go, oh yeah, he's pretty telling her about her sexual habits. He's, he's, he's really reading her on all that. He's spilling the tea in front of everybody because she's out there wilding out. She's out there doing all these crazy things. He's about to give it to her. This actually has nothing to do with that. Kim does such a great job of really showing us the real heart of that passage. And when you think about what Jesus is really doing, he's saying this. Yeah, you've had five husbands. You know what we know about the time back then? Women didn't get divorces on their own. They weren't allowed to. So how did that woman have five husbands? Because she was being passed around from these different husbands, likely because of some of the really horrific practices that were happening when people wanted to, if they wanted to get their money back on a dowry, they'd find a reason to be able to prove that this woman over here wasn't faithful or had done something or wasn't a virgin when they got something like that. They would find ways to get their money back and then use that to go elsewhere and get another woman. This woman had had that happen to her five different times, suffering horrific injustices, probably unmarriable to most people. The man she's with, not her husband, she easily could have felt forced into a life for prostitution. She easily could have easily dealt with all forms of sexual harassment and assault, possibly even rape. And Jesus looks at her and says, I see your pain. I see your suffering. You are not silenced. Jesus gives us the roadmap. Jesus gives us the example of how to see people who otherwise are unseen, how to hear people who otherwise are not silenced. Jesus says, I see you, I hear you, I love you, and I am rescuing you. Now, if we are saying that we love that Jesus, and we're saying that we're being remade to look like that Jesus, can all of us in this room say, man, that there are people I can look at right now and go, I do, I see you, and if I haven't seen you, I need to. I may need to go to someone and apologize and say, I've not heard you, and I need to. I've not really done a great job of trying to feel your pain, and I need to. 
I've pretty much tried to come up with great, technically sound, logical arguments to basically deflate all of your pain, to pull and almost invalidate all of your pain. I'm sorry. I'm hearing you. I'm seeing you. I'm loving you. This is what Jesus empowers us to do because we can't do it on our own. So Jesus comes to to do that for us and then model that for us and then empower us to do that very thing. If we know, specifically men, I'm talking to you men, if we know that women face, we know what they face, and we, then we should probably act accordingly. If we are actively working against sexual violence, then we acknowledge that we have no ownership over women. Our desire to control and overpower and impose our will is a function of this deep, seated sin nature. Yes, the phrase toxic masculinity, we should see that all through the scripture. We shouldn't be looking at, oh, this is some politicized word. It's actually all throughout the scripture. Levi and Simeon, toxic masculinity. Examples of people using any excuse to just have unbridled bloodlust. It's a function of deep-seated sin nature. So how do we prevent rape? How do we prevent rape culture? Here's a few tips. They have nothing to do with telling a woman what not to wear, not to say, where not to go, and when not to go. First one, we said it already. It's an important one. Write it down. Don't rape, period. It's a good number one rule. Don't rape, period. Two, in specifically in young circles, because there's a, I think the numbers are that there's a higher percentage of that between like 18 and 28 or 29 year olds. Um, one thing that's there, when you are out doing whatever, enjoying yourself or what have you, don't put drugs in women's drinks and then return back to number one. Number three, you see a woman by herself, leave her alone. And return back to number one. Don't think it's a woman's role to satisfy your ability to feel desired or attractive. They don't have to socially affirm your existence. Just keep moving. Number four, men, really important. Something that we like to tell women to do, we need to do it. Use a buddy system. Here's what I mean. If it's inconvenient for you to stop yourself from assaulting, raping, or even overlooking either of those two, ask a trusted friend to accompany you at all times. So that if they need to check you, they can check you. And finally, And more importantly, see women the way Jesus sees women. See your, the the scripture says we should treat them the way we would treat sisters. See women the way Jesus sees women. Image bearers, loved by our God, worthy of dignity, honor, and equal voice. Women, Jesus restores your voice. He restores your voice. And he's restoring our relationship to each other as he restores all of us in him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, will you, will you indeed come upon our hearts right now? I, I pray that you would give us a deep, deep abiding longing to see each other the way you see us. God, I pray that for women in this room that have dealt with and are dealing with any forms of trauma, any forms, no matter how long ago it was or even how recent it is, God, I pray that you would make us a people that knows how to lovingly engage, lovingly respect, lovingly listen, lovingly see, lovingly be present. God, I pray that you would give us a 
a, a mind, a, a mouth that will shut up, that will listen, that will be, uh, that will be able to love folks the way that you love us and the way you love them. God, I pray that you would give us a deep heart of repentance in all the ways that we have overlooked, specifically the women in our lives, in our communities, in this nation. God, I am so aware of all the ways that even Christianity has been more complicit than they have been helpful for women to feel indeed safe. God, as I think about uh, even just the fact that we've got 31 states in this country right now that have laws on the books that require rapists to have access to women who have had their children and we don't do anything to protect. God, I pray that we would constantly have this abiding feeling that this isn't right, that this should not be. And God, I pray that we will move past intellectual assent, even emotional uh, uh, heaviness. God, I pray that you would make us anti-rapist because that's what it means to be an image bearer. That's what it means to seek restoration. God, I pray that we would not just be a people that says that we want to see restoration when Jesus comes. God, your kingdom is here. Your kingdom is now. You tell us to pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so God, we know there is no rape in heaven, so we don't want to see it here. Give us a burning desire to see that rooted out. Give us a hatred for it, not a modest dislike. Not, I pray that we not see it as a mild nuisance or an annoyance. I pray that we see it as something to be hated, something to be stamped out, not just the behavior, but the culture that allows for the behavior to exist. God, I'm praying for your righteous indignation in all of us right now to identify the things within ourselves and within our communities, within our families. When we hear something said, that we call it out. When we hear the joke said, that we call it out. When we see the ways that people are treated, we call it out. When people bring up these pains, we listen and we hear. And we do this, yes, for them. We do this because we love them. And God, we do this too because we know this brings you maximum glory. So God, give us a deep jealousy for your glory in the ways that we love and long for sexual justice and restoration in women today. We pray this now through your spirit, through your word, in the name of Jesus. Amen. As we come to this table, this table is really a picture of this kind of commitment to restoration. It's a picture that God has already shown. God has already shown he's committed to restoring us. And so often we will stop there. Man, communion is such a great time where I'm reminded of the ways that God loves me. And, and I'm reminded true, truly individually of my sin and the ways that I have missed the mark and the ways that I have been separated from him. And I'm also reminded of all the ways that he has loved me, saved me, ransomed me, bought me back, given me the ability to be holy, given the ability to be justified, given the ability to be sanctified. And I'm thankful for all of that. Bless God. Amen. But there's another aspect to communion. There's another aspect to coming to this table. It's not just, yes, we, we, we're mourning our sin and we're celebrating our relationship with him, but we also, this is a table of common union, common unity. If we are in any position, if we can identify in our own hearts ways in which we have overlooked, specifically women, we have overlooked ways in which women have been harmed, hurt, traumatized. This is a time to repent. 
This is when the scripture tells us that before we ever come to give our offering and before we come to the table, we need to actually work on that kind of reconciliation first. That's why. It's so interesting when you think through how important that type of restored relationship is to God. Because he says, before you come and take any of these elements, make sure that aspect is worked out in your heart first. And it might mean I have to take this time and go, Lord, I'm, I'm submitting this to you right now. I'm making a commitment in this very seat right now to do the work of an anti-rapist, to do the work of a person that says, I want to be active, an active agent in making sure that assault is not a part of the culture where I am. And it might mean having a hard conversation with someone that maybe in the past we overlooked. Maybe in the past we explained away. Maybe we mansplained away. Maybe we, even if we're a, wo a woman, we've uh, in many ways taken the same arguments that men have basically given, even though we wouldn't look at it that way. And maybe I need to step back and go, I'm sorry. I want to listen. I want to hear. Because ultimately, I want you to feel safe. I want you to feel loved. And I want to see you be restored. That's what we're saying when we come and take part, partake in this. I want to be rightly connected, not only to God, but I want to be rightly restored to my sister, to my brother. So that is true for you. This isn't just whether or not you believe in Jesus. It's about whether or not Jesus is actually doing the work on my heart right now. If I can see that, I can say that, then this is the table. If that's not where you are, if you're uh, not either A, I just don't know about this Jesus thing, or B, I'm just not sure about what it means to be, I'm good with the way that I see things, I'm good with the way that I'm restored where I need to be. In the other places, I don't see a need for that. Let this time just pass. Let this time be a time where Jesus meets you exactly where you are. God, give me some type of impression to help me impress yourself upon my heart to make me see the ways in which I am far from you on this. And maybe even this would be a time where either A, you come restored and repentant, or you come knowing Jesus for the first time. See, this is the true holistic picture of Jesus, a restorer, a restorer of the broken, the one that, that, that gives comfort to the brokenhearted. So if we can't see ourselves as comforter, it's good to be a person that loves to argue. It's good to be a person that loves to have good logical arguments. That's great. That's, a, that's needed on some level. But it's also needed and required to be a comforter. Scripture says that he who wins souls is wise, not he who wins arguments. When there are people who have broken hearts and broken souls and broken emotions, what does it mean to be a restorer and a healer? That's what this table is today. As the volunteers come, we want to remind you that here at ICON, we do communion by the process of intinction. And so that means that uh, you'll start in the back uh, of the auditorium, uh, you walk down the middle aisle, you come and take a piece of gluten-free bread and you will dip it in wine or juice as you see fit. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, the night that he would be horrifically hurt, maimed, broken, harmed, and killed, he stood up and he gave thanks for the Passover meal and these disciples that he had spent so, so many years with and he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body given for you. Take and eat of it. And in the same manner, Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is, is my blood, the blood of a new covenant, blood poured out for the remission of sins. Take and drink of it. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Here's what...
Paul tells us about communion. Here's what he says about every time we do this. He said, as often as we do this, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns. In the context of what we just said, what are we really proclaiming? We're saying that even my best efforts, even if I'm able to do some work and I'm able to do some things to help being about this repairing work, I can't possibly do this by myself. Not only am I not able to do it by myself, but it's going to take God to be the one to even melt my heart away. The things that I need to change, the new eyes that I need, the new ears that I need, the new heart that I need. It's going to be him. And it will not be perfect until he returns. There is a day that's coming where we will never have to cry about this again. There is a day that's coming where we will never have to hold the scars of this type of assault again. There's a day that's coming where we won't even have to worry about looking back on issues and it bringing up triggering moments. That's one word that won't be in heaven, triggering. And so we're longing and we're saying that with all of the pain that we've dealt with, with all of the pain that's around here, with all of the heartbreak that happens, there is a day that's coming where that will be wiped away. And as long as the tomb is empty, as long as Jesus returns, we have hope. That's what we trust in. So if that's your hope, if that's your prayer, if that's where you take the only sometimes, God doesn't promise we'll always be happy, but he tells us that we're able to have joy. And sometimes that's the only place where our joy is. That ultimately there is change happening and there's a change that's coming. There's a restoration that's coming. That's the only place I can find hope and joy right now. If that is your hope, that's your joy. If that's truth, then come, be convinced, be reminded, taste and see that our Lord, our great repairer, is indeed good. Let's eat together.